about midway through um, the passage uh, last uh, week, and we pick things up in verse 37. John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 37. We're told that on the last day, that great day of the feast, and so we remember uh, that what we're talking about is the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three great Jewish feasts of the Jewish religious calendar. It lands uh, year in and year out in what is our typically our September, October. We remember that John is focusing now from this point forward in his gospel. His focus is largely upon the final six months of Jesus' life before the cross. So it is in the fall of the year and the fall before he ends up being crucified, buried, and rising again uh, in the spring of uh, the following year. There was a, the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated over a period of eight days and uh, people would uh, have all kinds of ceremonies. They wouldn't live in their houses. They would uh, set up these tents or these structures made out of wood that they could find. And, and the whole city of Jerusalem, as I mentioned last time, would just be filled with pilgrims, somewhere uh, between one and two million people. And so that's quite a population in the ancient uh, world. And so on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, during the feast, uh, at, at that time, again, this feast being a celebration of God's faithfulness to the children of Israel during the 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness, following their exodus from the, uh, the captivity in Egypt until finally entering into uh, the land of Canaan. And so there were all of these, uh, these aspects of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles that were a part of the Scriptures, but the Jews then added a ceremony of their own uh, to the Feast of, of Tabernacles in order to kind of especially remember one of the great miracles that God performed on their behalf during the 40 years of uh, that wandering in the wilderness. And the event was when they were wandering through the wilderness of sin, we're told, and they were desperately thirsty for water. The Lord uh, supernaturally provided it to them by instructing Moses to strike the rock, and then water would come forth, and it would satisfy uh, their physical thirst. Paul tells us that all of it is an image there of Jesus himself, and we really won't understand what's happening here unless we understand it uh, exactly that, that way. That that rock, the striking of the rock, that physical nourishment uh, uh, for quenching of thirst, coming forth there, a picture of Jesus, a picture of uh, the coming Messiah. And what God was communicating through uh, that miracle is that one day He would send a Savior into the world who would quench their spiritual, the world's spiritual thirst in the same way that he had just quenched their uh, physical thirst in, in that wilderness. And so they came up with a tradition uh, in order to emphasize that particular miracle. During the first seven days of the feast, each day there would be this procession of priests that would uh, leave the area of the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They would then carry a golden vessel from the temple down the southern steps, down to the pool of Siloam. They would fill uh, that golden vessel with water and then they would return up the stairs to the temple courts and uh, all the time singing uh, songs from the Psalms. And then as they would bring up this water in this golden uh, vessel to this temple mount area that is just jammed with pilgrims and jammed with uh, people, they would then pour that water uh, out into a silver basin that would have a small hole at the bottom of it. That water would then flow out, uh, allow the water then to flow forth from that little hole like a small stream and uh, for each of those seven days, as this reenactment of this supply of water was done, uh, Jesus was there. He stood and he watched it among the masses of the people, and he let all of it go on uh, uninterrupted. 
On the last day, or the eighth day of the feast, it always landed on a Sabbath. And on that day, there was no procession uh, at all. And the, uh, the uh, ceasing, or, or the not doing that procession on the eighth day, symbolized a couple of things to the Jews. The first thing it was, was it was an acknowledgement and a praise to God that they were no longer in the wilderness. Uh, that, uh, that, that, that they didn't need that supernatural supply of water anymore. God had brought them into the land of Canaan as he had promised that he would. But it also communicated their recognition that uh, all of the many Old Testament prophecies uh, which spoke of uh, the refreshing that the Messiah, the spiritual refreshing that the Messiah uh, would one day bring to the Jews, one day bring to the world, and it hadn't happened yet. And so it was their way of saying that as wonderful as God's provision was during that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, uh, even greater days were ahead for them and for the world when the Messiah came. And so it was their way of saying, Messiah is coming, keep your eyes open, stay on the alert, the Messiah is coming, and we want to notice Him at His appearing. And so when Jesus stood... And he, on the eighth day, then declares himself to be the one that will satisfy their thirst. Here in this passage, they would have immediately recognized it for what it was. Him declaring himself to be the Jewish uh, Messiah. And so you notice there that Jesus stood and he cried out. Now in, in the ancient world, when a rabbi would teach, the rabbi would sit and the congregation would stand. So when uh, someone of prominence would stand, they had something to say, and he stands here now, taking a position opposite of the teacher, and now he's going to make a proclamation that is the position or the posture of a prophet. And so uh, Jesus here now stands in order to uh, declare uh, this truth concerning himself and uh, uh, to be their Messiah. And so uh, Jesus, when he offers this invitation, uh, the Holy Spirit wants us to be aware of that fact that uh, this is exactly what he uh, was doing. And so Jesus stands and, uh, and he declares this message to them. Remember that the city of Jerusalem is filled with people they hold very conflicting opinions about Jesus uh, at this time. Some believe him to be the Messiah. Some believe him to be an imposter. And uh, so now he uh, uh, removes all doubt in their minds about whether he is the Messiah or not in, in declaring himself the source of spiritual life and of spiritual uh, abundance. You notice the invitation that he cries out to this just a mass of people in all directions. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his uh, heart will flow rivers of live, living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, uh, whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so Jesus declares, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And uh, here in Jesus' statement is the recognition that everyone in life uh, has a spiritual uh, thirst. And, uh, and, and there's a, there has to be a spiritual dimension of our life, a spiritual meaning and purpose to our lives uh, uh, that uh, brings a fulfillment and satisfaction uh, to us. And, that, and a satisfaction we will never ever experience until we do experience what Jesus describes here. I remember very well in, in my life before I became a Christian that sense that there must be something more to life than what I have experienced. And the reason that we feel that there must be something more to life than what I have experienced before we become a Christian is that there is. 
and it's the most important thing of all, and that is to enter into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So everybody has that thirst, and as Jesus makes that stand, as wonderful as this ceremony was for eight days, or seven days that went on, and uh, as Jesus is watching it, on the eighth day he could look out upon this multitude of people and see that it hadn't satisfied any spiritual thirst in their lives at, at all. Uh, they were as thirsty as they had ever uh, been. Because you cannot satisfy a spiritual thirst with a physical something. Even if that physical something is a religious ritual that religious men or women put together to try and satisfy that thirst. So he knows everybody has watched this uh, ceremony go on and all it's done is, is to make them more aware than ever of the spiritual thirst they have and their need for that thirst to be quenched. And so now he stands and, and he uh, declares how uh, to do that. And you notice what he tells the thirsty person to do. He said in verse 37, let him come to me and uh, drink. Well, how in the world do you uh, do that? Well, to drink something is to internalize something. It is to take something that is presently on the outside of me and then bring it into the inside of me. He's talking about uh, now this physical, this spiritual thirst now being satisfied by drinking of him and then, and then the, the thirst being satisfied. And then you ask yourself the question, well, how does a person come to him and to drink? And it's by trusting in him uh, as our Savior, confessing our sin to him, repenting of our sin. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives now, and now we're engaged in a relationship with God that we have been uh, created for. And so he declares there, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. How do we drink? He who believes in me. We internalize this spiritual refreshment. Uh, we internalize the spiritual life by believing in Jesus Christ for uh, that, uh, that salvation. You notice in verse 38 that Jesus tells us that not only will the Holy Spirit then come into our lives and satisfy us spiritually, but He will overflow our lives and the Holy Spirit will then come out of our innermost being as Christians as a torrent of living water. How many of you have ever, I remember when I was a new Christian, uh, Greg Laurie, Pastor Greg Laurie was doing, uh, he, he wanted to be a cartoonist, and, and he did some early uh, Christian tracks uh, with a guy named Ben Born Again. And he did a track called Living Water that, that really uh, put a picture in my mind related to this uh, forever. And you had been, been born again, experienced this dynamic of the Holy Spirit in his life, and there was this river gushing out uh, of his belly in the uh, cartoon that, that Greg uh, uh, wrote and, and drew. And that's exactly what is being described uh, here. God not only uh, wants this dynamic of the Holy Spirit in our life for what it will do for us, but also for what it will do with the people around us. And so when this happens within our life, there will be this torrent of living water. Picture a fire hydrant opened up coming out of, uh, out of our lives and, uh, and then impacting uh, the world around us. So our lives become kind of spiritual drinking fountains. So that when people come into contact with us, they come into contact with me, they're no longer coming in contact with the old Damien Kyle, but they're coming in contact with this dynamic of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They are coming into contact with a, a spiritual refreshment and reality in the middle of the wilderness that is 
uh, is this uh, world. And so uh, Jesus not only quenches our spiritual thirst, but he now works through us to quench the spiritual thirst of others. And I think about, as he talks about rivers of living water, torrents of living water, I always think about it the same way. And you think about how many great rivers there are in the world. You've got the Amazon River, you've got the Rhine, you've got the Nile, uh, you've got the Mississippi River, all of these rivers, and all day, every night, they flow in the world. And, and you see the, the refreshing impact that these rivers have in the world physically all day, every day. And what God calls us to do in be by this dynamic of the Holy Spirit, is to now become a great spiritual river in, in the world, refreshing the spiritual needs and thirsts of the people uh, around us. And that's the intent of this dynamic of the Holy Spirit. Not only a concern for myself, my own spiritual thirst being satisfied, but then to impact those that I come into contact with uh, day in and day out and refreshing them by bringing them into contact uh, with the Lord. And all of this is just waiting for anyone uh, who wants it. And one of the things that I love about this passage is how Jesus describes this dynamic of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and what it should look like in the life of every Christian. What he's talking about here is what Jesus will later call uh, in, in Acts chapter 1, as it will occur, is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming upon our lives. He is with us as Christians. He is in us as Christians. Can't be a Christian if he's not in us. But he is also uh, 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 with us and in us, but he's uh, uh, also along. Okay, so he's in us and he's with us. And he's pouring out of our lives as well. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the power to be a witness. He's upon us. It's the power to be a witness of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. No matter where a person lives, no matter what neighborhood, what country, what circumstance, here is the power to be a witness of Jesus Christ in that in environment calls it a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Again, there's the imagery of water. When someone is water baptized and you hug them after they've been water baptized, what do you get on you? You get water on you. You get what they've been baptized in on you. In the same way, with a baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's in order that when people come into contact with us now as Christians, and, and enjoying this dynamic that they will come into contact uh, with the Holy Spirit operating in and through our lives. Well, one of the great questions that I had when I was a new, uh, a brand new Christian and got going with the Lord, there's a lot of controversy that was going on at that time. I assume it's still going on uh, today. And so uh, there were, people would teach and say, well, related to the Holy Spirit, um, you get all of the Holy Spirit you'll ever need at the moment that you are uh, born again. There's no need to give any kind of consideration to that the rest uh, of your Christian life. Others talked about a second blessing and kind of the argument that went on back and forth about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that a person can be, water, can be baptized with the Holy Spirit at the moment they're born again, but we also know in the book of Acts chapter 8 that you had an entire village filled with Christians. They became Christians. They believed in Jesus Christ under salvation, under the ministry of Philip. And yet it was only after two of the apostles came from Jerusalem to the city, laid hands on, prayed for them, that the Holy Spirit then came upon them and baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus does in this imagery is he just, and it isn't that the theology of it isn't important, but he makes it very, very simple. 
He describes the, full, the fullness of the dynamic of the Holy Spirit that He wants for our lives is to be like a torrent of living water flowing out of our innermost being. And so we can leave the theological arguments by the side and then to ask myself, does that characterize my life? Is there an overflow of, my, uh, 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 of the Holy Spirit related to my uh, life? And if there isn't, then there is a, a, a greater experience between the Holy Spirit and myself that, that I am to partake of. And, and so uh, I, we, we ask ourselves this evening, does that mark my life? And if it doesn't, Jesus spoke and he said, if you being evil know how to give good, uh, uh, being evil as fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So if, if you're a Christian here tonight, and every single day, I mean, you're born again, you're on your way to heaven. But every single day, all anyone ever gets out of you is the old you. There's nothing spiritual that comes out of your life. There's no spiritual refreshment, not in your home, not in your school, not in your job, not with yourself. I mean, there's no overflow about your life. And it's important that we don't settle down into that as the fullness of, of the Christian life. And, and then to realize that this dynamic of the Holy Spirit is just there for the asking. I remember when I was a new Christian, and I walked with the Lord for a little while, and I'm trying to live this Christian life in my own strength. And I remember, I was working for the phone company at the time, I was a cable splicer, I remember the very bee box I was at uh, on Old Sonoma Road in Napa, California, where I said to the Lord, Lord, I'm going to need to either start enjoying this or I'm not going to make it. And I was trying to live the Christian life in my own strength. And then the Lord spoke to my heart that He never intended me to live this in my own strength. And then I became aware of the baptism with the Holy Spirit and then experienced that, the joy that comes with that, the fruit that comes uh, with that. And so this dynamic that, that happens. I'm, and, and I think about um, what a dynamic it brings into our lives. I'll never forget. This is just like symbolic of... Uh, of a million situations that we can all find ourselves in. But I remember one time I was riding a, a, a bicycle a, a, a lot back then, and I remember we, were, we drove someplace to a ride, and there was this team of Christians that were all there. They had a Christian kit on and gear and, and the Lord, all about the Lord on their jerseys and all of that kind of thing. And I saw them, and, and I'm just, I'm wearing something secular. And, but I, I, I walk by them and I see Christians. It's believers. And so they're all just standing there waiting for things to happen. And I walked up to them and I said, has the Lord been good to you? I might as well have spoken it to that guitar for the response that I got uh, from any of them. Maybe I was just a little bit weird and they weren't ready for it. So I don't want to judge them too harshly on that. But this dynamic of the Holy Spirit, I mean, there's more than just for me. It's an impact uh, all around us. And, and there should be that, that overflow in our lives. So if that, that doesn't mark your life to just tonight say, Lord, this doesn't mark my... I've never heard of any of this before. And, and I, want, I want your Holy Spirit to not only fill me, I want Him to overflow me. And, and Jesus said, again, our Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And even though we're born again, for this fullness of the Holy Spirit to occur, and He will always bless that. And no person is the same. Uh, after having prayed for a fresh refilling of the Spirit, than they were the moment before they, they said that prayer. And so you're heading into a, a hard meeting. Uh, you're heading into a hard situation. Whatever the kind of deal might be, 
in your life. You're going to go teach a Bible study. You're going to go do something spiritual. You're going to go out and share your faith with, uh, uh, with the world. You're going to go meet with your aunt and talk with her about spiritual things and to just say, Lord, would you fill me now with your fullness so you overflow my life and not me. And then he will do that. And so the importance of realizing there are refillings that are involved in this. I don't know how many times a day I ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit to overflowing. Because i got so many problems in my life. There are so many situations or things that I have to deal with. And the Lord, freshly refill me now for this situation, for this decision, for what I'm about to do here. And He's always, always uh, faithful uh, to do that. And it's not just, you know, what we think about in terms of, okay, I'm going to go teach a Bible study, or I'm going to go witness, as important as those things are. We need the baptism with the Holy Spirit in every one of our marriages. And every parent needs the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I mean, you want a, you want a case for needing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Raise children in this culture. They can't be done apart from the Holy Spirit, not to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so just to know that this is what it is, and it's just there uh, for uh, the asking. And so, Lord, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to head out into this world. I'm going to go to work, and there's going to be that hard person that is there. Would you freshly fill me with your Holy uh, Spirit for that? Uh, I'm going to turn on the news, Lord. Would you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit? Uh, before I see what in the world people have done uh, today. And so Jesus makes the invitation and then the response, therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly this is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. And so the prophet speaks of the one that Moses uh, spoke of, a prophet who would come speaking of uh, of the Messiah. Others clearly said, Jesus, here He is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But some said, will Christ come out of Galilee? Uh, has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Now this is about one of the saddest things in the whole world right here. They are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah under the mistaken belief that because He was raised in Nazareth, that He was also born in Nazareth. And that He wasn't born in Bethlehem. And they are rejecting Him on the basis of an absolute ignorance related to His life. And you think about how many people uh, do that without turning to the Scriptures and at least fight with so much at stake in terms of what we do with Christ. I don't want to take anybody else's word for it, but to find out what is the truth here and then make my decision based upon that. Here's a whole group of people that didn't even bother to find out where he was born in rejecting him. I think Pastor Markey, uh, teaching a couple of weeks ago, talked about that atheist that uh, overturning uh, the faith of, of people in terms of Christ and, and looking at Jesus' soul statement there, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me uh, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane? And then painting Jesus as if that's the only thing that the Bible says about Jesus and, uh, uh, and, and that he's not worthy of your faith and this doesn't sound like somebody who's in control of anything much less his own life and all of this even though Jesus declared as, as Pastor Mark said that even before he declared that speaking of his death, burial and resurrection it is so sad that anyone would have their faith overturned uh, or, or, or to be turned away from Christ when the facts are so easy to find right here uh, in the Scriptures. And I, I fear for how many people uh, do that very thing. And, and, uh, and they take the word of other people, even religious uh, leaders, and, uh, and don't find out for themselves. We need to find out for ourselves. And so there was a division among the people because of him. 
Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. They wanted to arrest him. And then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, uh, why have you not brought them? So apparently uh, the chief priests had sent out a kind of a religious security force that they had. Rome allowed them to have it to maintain security in the area of the temple. They had apparently been sent out by the Jewish religious leaders to arrest Jesus uh, following this declaration of his uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles. They come back empty-handed and and when they are uh, confronted with that, the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. If you ever get a tape of one of Jesus' teachings, I'd, I'd like a copy of that. Can you imagine? So here is the, the Jewish uh, religious police force for the temple area in Jerusalem. They have heard teaching after teaching after teaching after teaching They had heard rabbis teach morning, noon, and night in the area of the temple. And they come back empty-handed and they declare, no man ever spoke like this man. We've never heard anyone handle the Scriptures in this way. Nobody can compare to Him. And it so arrested them, so to speak, that they... Uh, they were unable to arrest Jesus. And then the Pharisees answered them and said, uh, are you also deceived uh, that he's the Messiah? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? What does that have to do with anything? This is the the scorn. This is the, the peer pressure of the group. We're the smart ones. You're the stupid ones. And do you see any of us believing uh, in him? Obviously, they didn't uh, realize that Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph had uh, within, within their group. But they tried to just use this whole idea that if you believe in him, you do it in defiance of the experts, we're the experts, and you're stupid. And so have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? And uh, of course not, but they kept their motive for not believing in him to themselves. They were threatened by uh, his power. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So again, this, this use of education to, uh, to put them down for even thinking about that. And scorn and... and uh, and reviling in that way is a very, very powerful tool for moving people away from something that they want to pursue, um, but uh, not having the ability to do it on the basis of fact. Now you endeavor to do it on the basis of intimidation and on, on, the, on the basis of this kind of peer pressure. And so uh, they resorted to that. And Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, John chapter 3, being one of them, these Pharisees, uh, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Remember Jesus said to Nicodemus, uh, are you a teacher, the teacher of the law in Israel and you don't know these things? So Nicodemus' reputation as a teacher was stellar. And why was it stellar? It's on full display here. He takes everything back to the Word of God. He takes it back to the law of Moses and says, wait in the world, wait a minute, what are we doing as Pharisees and as the Sanhedrin condemning someone when the law of Moses says you can't condemn anyone until you give that person the ability to defend themselves in a hearing? And so he confronts them with the law of Moses in this regard. And they answered him and said, answered and said to him, Are you also uh, from Galilee? Jesus' ministry being up in the Galilee area. Are you the big uh, fan of, uh, of that, you know, that something great is going to come out of the Galilee rather than out of uh, Jerusalem? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of 
Galilee. The problem is, that wasn't true. Jonah came out of the Galilee. And so here again, you have this ignorance of the Scriptures, maybe deliberate, maybe genuine, on the part of the Jewish religious leaders as a reason for rejecting uh, Christ when they're completely uh, wrong related to it. Again, we should never ever give that decision of what we do to Christ, even to religious leaders, in terms of what they, uh, they tell us or their handling of the Scriptures, we need to find out for ourselves. And then everyone then, at the end of this final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, everyone went to their own house. But Jesus then went to the Mount of Olives, on the other side of the Kidron Valley from the temple, on the eastern side. So that's where he spent the night. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. So it's very, very early in the morning is the language here. He comes then back into Jerusalem, back uh, to the area of the temple, and all of the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Now the temple was made up of a series of courts before you finally got to the temple. There's a court of the Gentiles on the outside, the outer area, the Gentiles could go that far, but no further. There's the court of the women, where Jewish women could go that far, but no further. And then there was the court of the men, and, uh, and men could go uh, even further, closer to the temple. And then there was the court related to the temple itself. And so Jesus apparently makes his way through the court of the Gentiles, comes into the court of the women. He doesn't go any further. Because if he goes any further, this woman can't become, can't be brought and thrust in front of him. He stops in the court of the women, and there he begins to teach. Now, the congregation that's there that's wanting to hear him teach, here's Jesus, and, and uh, can you believe it? He's here teaching a Bible study in this morning, and here we are. And they would run to the various rabbis and listen to what they had to say. And so this great crowd then gathers around Jesus and what it is that he is teaching, and he gets no further than the court of the Gentiles. Every, all uh, Jewish men and women could have access to him uh, in, in that uh, in that court, and he begins to teach them uh, the Word uh, of God. So they're hungry for the Word, hungry for the things of God, and uh, eager to receive his, his teaching. And so he takes the position of a teacher, he sits down, they stand, and he taught them. Imagine going, a, a trip to Jerusalem today is fabulous. Uh, imagine uh, if they could include in a trip to Jerusalem uh, Jesus' teaching uh, on one of the mornings. I mean, that would make it absolutely priceless. Well, we're going to hear some great teaching and all from Him one day uh, in, in glory. But here is Jesus teaching uh, the Word of God, rightly dividing the law and the prophets there before them. And then right at that moment, I mean, picture that here is what is a, uh, now the multitudes have left Jerusalem, it's quiet, these courtyards are, are beautiful, and uh, it's a fall day early in the morning, the crowds aren't moving, even the general crowds related to Jerusalem, and, and everything, this just beautiful, beautiful, quiet scene. And, and all of it's going to be interrupted here in a moment by something that is very uh, shameful and embarrassing. But I say it's going to be interrupted, um, not in the sense that Jesus was interrupted by it. Because again, if Jesus had gone one court further, none of this could have played out. He knew he had an appointment with uh, the Jewish religious leaders and with this woman that is going to be cast in, uh, before him as he is uh, teaching on that uh, morning. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they came, they came early in the morning, knew Jesus would be there, and they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her or cast her uh, into the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. 
Now Moses in the law commanded us that such a one should be stoned, but what do you say? So here are the Jewish religious leaders, they're coming, and uh, all of their power, all of their wealth is being uh, threatened by Jesus' life and by his, his teaching, and so now they're endeavoring to find a fault with him in order that they could discredit his teaching and, uh, and, and if it was possible at all that it could somehow uh, lead to a charge of blasphemy or, or violence against Roman law and, and that he could be uh, uh, put to death, which would be all the better to them. So they barge in the middle of this, this crowd of people that is surrounding Jesus and they interrupt the teaching of the Word of God. I mean, interrupt the, the very Son of God ministering the Word. I mean, you hardly have a picture of, of greater pride and arrogance and self-importance in, in a human being than what we see here uh, on display at all. They act as if the teaching of Jesus is worthless. It is only worthy of being uh, interrupted. It's a terrible, terrible uh, uh, visual related to them, and they forcibly placed a woman who they've caught in the very act of adultery right before Jesus in the midst of the crowd, and, uh, and they throw out the accusation uh, against her in public. Just a, really a stunning uh, demonstration of hard-heartedness uh, on, on their part. To publicly humiliate another human being in this way, even for righteous, even on a righteousness issue. Uh, in, in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, it says, if any brother is overtaken in the fall, you who are spiritual, go to him private, privately in order that he might be restored. So things do have to be dealt with on the basis of the Word of God. And, and, but the attitude is always redemptive. It is never to make their sin more publicly known or to shame them uh, out in the open square uh, related to their uh, sin. And, and yet they do this because all that she represents to them is just a pawn in their let's try and trap Jesus uh, game that they're in the middle of. So you think about her only moments before, minutes before. She is in the very act of adultery. And I, I doubt that these men, upon catching her, uh, in, in turn allowed her to dress in anything more than just grabbing something and putting it around her for some, uh, you, you know, iota of, of uh, modesty. And then she's forcibly pulled through the streets. She doesn't know where she's going. All she knows is that she is headed to the last place in the world that she wants to be taken, and that is toward uh, the temple. And think about, is, it, is you, you would put yourself in her position. It would be like a dream that you can't stop. It would be like the worst dream ever happening in real life. What a horrible, horrible thing to do, to, in, in claiming to be a representative of the Lord as these religious leaders claim to do this to uh, another uh, human being and to expose her sin so publicly. You notice in verse 4 they said to him, Teacher, this woman again caught in the adultery, in the very act, the law of Moses commanded that uh, us that such should be stone, but what do you say? And so, uh, catching her in the very act, her guilt is obviously indisputable, and, uh, and the charge is obviously true. She makes no protest uh, at all related to the scene. And then they inform Jesus of what the law of Moses required to be the sentence or the punishment uh, for adultery, and that was that she was to be stoned to death. And it was true. The law of Moses did uh, require that. And they then challenged him in, uh, there in verse 5 regarding what it is that he had to say about what should be done to her. You notice in verse 6, this they said, testing him, 
that they might have something of which to accuse him. They don't care about the women, the woman. They don't care about the crowd. They don't care about anything. They don't care about the law of Moses. They don't care about righteousness. All they care about is trapping Jesus and humiliating him publicly in the humiliation of this woman. That's the whole thing that's going on in play here, trying to trap him. And uh, so they're testing him. And you notice in verse 6 that you see Moses in the law uh, and then and you. And they're trying to produce within the minds of the listener of the Bible study that he's teaching that there is some kind of a gap between Moses and the law and who and what uh, Jesus is. And so uh, the, the dishonesty on their part, though, is... Uh, revealed in the fact that they produced only the woman and they didn't produce the man. Uh, Of course, to catch a a woman in the very act of adultery uh, would have meant that they had also caught the man in the very act of adultery, and where was he? And so again, this tells us that their concern wasn't for the law of Moses, but to trap Jesus. It's a very clever trap. Because in their mind, no matter what Jesus says here, he cooks himself. If he says, yes, she ought to be stoned, and then uh, they stone the woman right there in front uh, of, uh, of Jesus there in that, uh, in that scene, then uh, they would have immediately run to the Roman officials and reported Jesus' teaching uh, against the, the laws of Rome because Rome didn't allow the Jews to to handle capital punishment on their, on their own. Uh, they reserved that to themselves. So they would have reported him as an insurrectionist. And also, Jesus had a reputation of being gracious with sinners among people. And so this would have tarnished his reputation as being a lover of people and a lover of, of people's souls. If he said, no, she is not to be stoned, they would immediately have called on everyone uh, that was listening to his sermon that, uh, that morning to just reject him on the basis of the teaching of, of the law of Moses. That he's a false teacher, he's a false prophet, he's teaching contrary to the law of uh, of Moses, and in their mind, they have got him uh, trapped, and so they're trying to uh, force Jesus to one extreme of his nature uh, to the neglect of the rest. They're giving him a choice to represent himself as holy but unloving, uh, or to represent himself as loving but unholy. But up to now in Jesus' public ministry, it seems to the Jewish religious leaders that he's getting away with both. He's getting away with fixing in the minds of people that he is both holy and loving. And they want to break that, uh, that, uh, that perception of him that, that people had. And it's a very, very clever what they attempt to do here. And so what in the world will Jesus uh, do? And, uh, but before we get to that, you notice the actions and the attitudes of these scribes and Pharisees concerning uh, their own uh, life. When we deal with people, as I said, we have to deal with them on the basis of principle, principle being on the basis of uh, the Word of God. But once we cease to treat people as a human being or to treat them as we would want to be treated in in that that situation no concern for their feelings no concern for their humanity that is to fall very short of what Jesus is like and you have some people for whom the principle is everything the person is nothing we have to keep the commandments and uh, but we also have to realize that God loves this person and, and treat them uh, compassionately. And also, when we out people's private sins for the purpose of hurting them or destroying them, even in a private conversation, it's always, always an indication of a terrible, terrible pride on our part. It means that we have either minimized or forgotten our own sin, and our own sinful past, 
that God could expose related to any of us in a moment, but He doesn't uh, do that. Sins that are known only to God and, and, uh, and the realization of what God keeps to Himself between us and Him is a cause for treating uh, any other sinner in this world uh, with great, great compassion and, and great uh, discretion. The old saying is that humility is made up of two ingredients, honesty and a good memory. And they weren't being either honest uh, or reflecting upon uh, their own sin. Jesus responds to the Jewish religious leaders by stooping down, and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though uh, he did not uh, hear. So he doesn't stoop down to grab a rock. He says, all right, let's get, let's get to business. I mean, this is, the law is the law. And, and he, he reaches down, there's dirt and all, stoops down, writes on the ground with his finger as, as though he, he didn't, wasn't hearing what they were saying. And uh, it's the only place in all of the scriptures that we find uh, Jesus writing. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and what did he write? We have no sure way of knowing because there's no revelation given to us here. Some people believe that he began uh, to write down the specific sins of the scribes and the Pharisees that had brought this woman before Jesus, before him. And because when they leave, they don't leave as a mob. They leave in a very distinct order, as we'll see in a moment. They leave from the oldest to the youngest. And so some people speculate and they say that, um, uh, that Jesus began with the, the first name of Rabbi Shimei and uh, or, uh, or Rabbi Cohen and, and then began to write down sins that God knew about that person and now making them public and, and then them slinking away for a sinner like that treating another sinner in, in that way. And, and uh, so there's a possibility related uh, to that. Uh, I don't think, uh, 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 some people think that Jesus, you know, looked down and he began to write in the dirt because he's buying time because he doesn't know, you know, what he's going to do here. I, and, and he's embarrassed about all of this and, and uh, ashamed at the actions of the, the people and the embarrassment for the woman. I don't think that he did necessarily that. I wouldn't be surprised if he just let it all go quiet for a, a moment or however long it was, just to let the entire scene settle completely uh, upon uh, the group. And so apparently they uh, view his silence as an evidence that they've got him trapped and they've got him the kill on. And so they continued asking him, uh, you know, with the law of Moses, what should we do? Should we stone her? It says we should stone her. And, uh, and he then raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And so apparently they thought he was uh, doing this because he didn't know uh, what it was that he was going to do in the situation. And so they, thinking that they had him on the run, they could press him even more. And of course, his response is quite brilliant. He declared the law of Moses to be absolutely uh, just. And in the light of it, she ought to be uh, stoned. So they could not accuse him of violating the law of Moses. And then he suggested that the first stone to begin the stone, stoning be thrown by the one who is without uh, sin. What he can't be saying here is that um, only sinful, un, sinless people can judge and confront sin in another person's life. Because when someone sins against us, we need to confront them related to that sin. That's not what's being talked about here. A church has to operate in church discipline. That's not a violation of what it is that is, uh, is, is going uh, on here. He's not saying that Christians can't uh, become involved in the court system and, and be involved in a conviction and the sentence of 
criminals in the, in the justice system, as some people uh, kind of interpret all of this. I think the key to understanding this is found in the two words that he declares, among you. And you notice that following this statement, Jesus again, he stoops down in verse 8, and he continued to write uh, on the ground, and then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, uh, even to uh, the last. And so uh, uh, Jesus stoops down. This time their reaction is very, very different. There's no shouting, no demanding on their part. And instead, uh, Jesus' word is convicted, each of them in their conscience, and they went out one by one in that order. I'm inclined to believe that when Jesus stooped down and wrote that uh, he wrote out on the ground the fullness of the verse from the law of Moses that they were trying to trap him with. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So he publicly confronts them with their failure to obey the law of Moses. And in their deliberate failure to bring the man caught in the very act of adultery to Jesus for judgment. And so when he says, he who is without sin, who is among you, he's not talking about every situation uh, in life, he is saying to these specific men, he who is without sin in being obedient to God's word in this situation, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And now it was time for them to be ashamed in front of the crowd. Coming on the scene, casting this woman down, pretending to be have, having such a zeal for God and a zeal for the Word of God and a zeal uh, for the law of, of Moses. But like this woman, they just as fully disregarded the law of Moses when it was convenient for them to do so. And God took their secret sin and He made it public. And if we're going to publicly expose private sin here, He's kind of saying, let's not stop with her. And none of them could be an impartial witness to the law uh, required in order to cast the first stone in a capital uh, case. So now they stand in their own nakedness before the crowd as the Jewish religious leaders of, of the nation. And Jesus now, as they had paraded her, Jesus exposes them publicly in the same way that they had exposed uh, her and, and uh, convicted here and the key insight to the whole melting away here beginning from the oldest to the youngest is, is found in the words being convicted by their conscience and so here they're convicted by their own sin uh, the pride and the self-righteousness and the hypocrisy that was on full display in their life and the treatment uh, of, of this uh, woman Adultery is a sin, and it is a significant sin. I don't want to minimize that. But it wasn't a bunch of adulterers who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and ran Him off to be tried before the Jewish religious leaders and ultimately before Pilate. It was Jewish religious leaders who did so out of self-righteousness and pride and hypocrisy. And if those, it was those sins that produced the motivation to crucify Christ. And it is the danger of those sins that can take us into as bad decisions or even worse decisions in life than even sex, drug, and rock and roll kind of sins. I can't help it in looking at this to think about the cancel culture that is all around us uh, today, and I do hope that it's, it's ebbing a, a little bit. Where you take what a person has said or posted five years ago, ten years ago, 
20 years ago to dredge it up, to then make it public, throw it into their face, that this person is the kind of person should never be hired or listened to for the rest of their lives as a result. They're completely beyond redemption in any way. They're only worthy of being destroyed and being publicly destroyed. As if people can't change. As if any person is the same person they were 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, or 5 years ago, or 5 months uh, 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 ago. And none of this is anything like Christ. It's just pure pride and self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And it's to behave exactly like the Pharisees. As if all of us don't have things in our past that we would prefer not to have made public. And so often this cancel culture today goes way beyond even uh, the Pharisees in uh, the sense that they don't even bother to find some kind of a sin in the person they condemn. Uh, They're satisfied to just find someone who disagrees with them and then uh, does this kind of thing uh, to them. And this is why with the smallest effort imaginable, a reporter can take on any one of these people, examine their lives, find a mountain of hypocrisy in their self-righteousness, in their condemnation uh, of, of others, in their failure even remotely to live up to the standard that they demand of everybody else. Whatever a person's sinful past might be, the greater affront to God is for another sinner to expose that sin out of pride or self-righteousness or hypocrisy. There's the old saying, uh, when you point a finger at somebody, be careful because there's three fingers pointing back. And that's the truth in this regard. When we point out sin in other people in a, in a non-redemptive way, there are three fingers and always the same three fingers pointing back at us. And it is convicting us of the sin of self-righteousness, of pride, and hypocrisy in doing that. And there is nothing about what this, this thing that is going on today that looks anything even remotely uh, like Christ. The end result of, of all of this is Jesus is left then standing alone with this woman and she's standing in the midst. And there's still a tension here related to all of this because she doesn't know what he's going to do to her. We know what he's going to do. But she doesn't know that yet. And the audience doesn't know that uh, yet. And so everybody is watching. It's just minus these religious leaders that have gone, and when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, Woman, is it, is it a, a, that's a human being word. He treats her like a human being. He said, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. She doesn't say, no one rabbi. She says, no one lord. Kurios, speaking of Jesus as lord. And I'm inclined that she became a Christian in this moment, in this situation. She calls him lord, no one lord. And then Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so... Uh, here, the, the crowd is gone and he speaks to her. You have, the, you have my forgiveness. Now go and sin no more. A lot of people um, memorize the two verses from this passage. He who is out without sin, let him cast the first stone. And um, is, does no one condemn you? As is, is, is Jesus does here. And, and so the idea here is neither do I condemn you. The idea, they just paint Jesus' single uh, 
in, a, in a single kind of facet, that he is, is merely uh, the forgiver uh, of, of sins. And so it doesn't matter how much a person sins, Jesus doesn't care about that. And, uh, and uh, uh, you can continue to sin. He has a casual attitude related to that. But it isn't true because the sentence goes on in saying, neither do I condemn you. And then he, sa- she, he says, go and sin no more. We have a funny idea about grace. And we can become convinced that the sole expression of God's grace is in the forgiveness of our sins. And we forget that there's another aspect to God's grace, and that is in giving us the power to live a holy life and to live a life free from sin. Uh, if, If all that Jesus Christ offered to us was the forgiveness of sin, but we would have to spend the rest of our lives living a life of sin until we got to heaven, I would accept that because beggars can't be choosers. But that's not what He does. He forgives us of our sins, but then He gives us the ability to live an entirely different life, a life free from sin and the power of the Holy Spirit that we've talked about. And so He speaks the the two facets of His grace uh, to to this uh, uh, woman, and, uh, and she goes then evidently on her way, the only one in human history that was qualified to cast a stone at her uh, on the basis of Jesus' qualification being without sin doesn't cast a stone at her uh, at all. And so uh, God forgives. And concerning our past, the Bible says that uh, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He forgives us Uh, of our sins. It doesn't mean that God won't expose sin uh, if He's forced to do that. Uh, If a person ignores His warnings over and over and over and over again and, 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 and there's no repentance, sometimes He will publicly expose our sin as a last resort to just finally get our attention and it's an expression uh, of love. And so they tried to force Jesus here into being uh, one or the other, being holy but unloving or to be loving but unholy and uh, completely unsuccessful because He is both. And a sinner needs both. And tonight we're thankful that He is both. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Fathers, we live in this culture that is just puts everything out there. Every kind of fact, every kind of slander, every kind of attempt to humiliate, every kind of person in every kind of position within our culture. And it's all around us. And it's so unlike you, Jesus. And we pray that You would help us not to be a participant of it in any way. That we would be faithful to conceal a matter. Be redemptive in our treatment of other people. Even related to their sin. And after their sin. Lord, there's something so ugly about our flesh that even if we don't do it, we love to hear these kind of things about other people. And then we recognize that at that moment we're under the control of the same things. Self-righteousness, pride, and hypocrisy. Would you keep us, Lord, from this great trap, from this great um, influence that is around us to be distinctive in this world in this way as we recognize that this scene with this woman is played out all day, every day, all around the world. Jesus, help us to be like you in the midst of it. And we ask it in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.